Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Katie Bishop about her psychological suspense novel, The Girls of Summer. Katie is a writer and journalist based in Birmingham. She's written for the New York Times, The Guardian and Vogue, among other publications. In this episode, we discuss how the Me Too movement inspired her teenage character's troubling first romance how she used the present tense to let the reader experience events alongside her character, and how she structures her day as a full-time writer. But first, here's Katie with an excerpt from The Girls of Summer. It's too hot to be outside for long. Sweat is starting to dampen my scalp, thickening in the roots of my hair and pooling in the crevices of my collarbone. My T-shirt sticks to my spine and my arms are tinged pink, and a gamey line of skin beginning to blister along the top of my thigh in the almost unseasonable blaze of sun. I curl my toes into the damp sand and feel the sharpness of a small shell against the sole of my foot. Please don't let him have left without me, I think. I'll do anything. I need him to come for me. From my spot on the sand, I can just make out the dock. Rising out of the sea is the rickety wooden platform where I disembarked months ago, seasick and tired. A small boat is tethered there, bright blue and bobbing in the slow swell of the tide. It will leave in ten minutes, and I am supposed to be on it. When I arrived here this morning, the dock was quiet. Now there is a bustle of activity, a queue of impatient tourists ready to embark. The waves edge closer to my legs and dampen the ground beneath my heels. I shiver as salt water laps the tip of my toe. Just a few more minutes... Just a few more minutes and he'll be here. Rachel. Someone is waving one arm in my direction, their figure silhouetted against the brightness of the sky. I lift one hand to shield my eyes and see that it's Helena. She's walking quickly, half jogging, and as she collapses down next to me, her chest heaves, her breath tangled up in her throat. Her hair is damp and salt crystals are beginning to form and glitter at her neck a white and grainy sheen that edges in one long streak from her jaw down to her collarbone. They came for him, she says, her voice ragged and airless. This morning, I'm already shaking my head, clambering to my feet. No, I say. They didn't find him. He'd already left. He got away. It takes a moment for me to find the words, for the shapes that Helena's mouth makes to form into something resembling meaning. He can't have. I've been to the house. Everything's gone. You're lying. We knew this would happen, Rachel. We knew they'd come for him in the end. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Girls of Summer. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really like the podcast, so I'm really excited to be here. Oh, thank you. So can you start by introducing your novel for us and telling us what The Girls of Summer is about? Yeah, so the way that I would probably describe The Girls of Summer is that it's a one that got away story with a Me Too twist to it. So the book is about a woman called Rachel, and when we first meet her, she's in her mid-30s, and she's quite settled, she's married, she's got a job that she likes, 
Um, but she's also quite unhappy in lots of ways as well. And that's mainly because she's never been able to let go of her memories of this amazing magical summer that she had back when she was 17 and 18, um, backpacking around the Greek islands. And in particular, this amazing love affair that she had at the time with a guy called Alistair. He was about 15 years older than her at the time. So when we first meet Rachel, she is actually going back to this beautiful, isolated Greek island where she spent that summer with her husband, Tom. And when she's there, she has a chance encounter with a woman that she used to know back then. And this really sends her spiraling back into all of these incredible memories of that summer when she was away from home for the first time and she was partying and she was drinking and she was making friends. And in particular, she was falling in love with this guy, Alistair, who she still really considers to be her first love. And she decides that she wants to actually track Alistair down. And we really go along on this journey with her as she searches for Alistair and reconnects with people from her past and starts to realise that her memories of that summer are actually quite flawed. And maybe what was happening wasn't exactly how she remembered it. And maybe even the way that she experienced it wasn't exactly what was going on at the time. Mm. It's such a smart book because I think a lot of us have memories of things that happened when we were teenagers that at the time we thought were totally fine and then when you think about them 15 years later you start to look at them with a different perspective and think hang on that actually wasn't okay um and I think this book does that in a such a gripping and just such an involving way where you're it, what, whichever section you're reading you're kind of racing to find out what's going to happen next so I found out that your inspiration came from kind of several places, including backpacking you did, um, but also the Me Too movement. So where did that first initial spark come from? Yeah, I feel like it came from a few different places, really. So I'd been playing around with the idea for a little while of writing a kind of one that got away novel, um, because it's just an idea that's very, very interesting to me. And as you kind of mentioned there, the novel is so much about memory. And I'm really very interested in the idea of memory, how our memories are so unreliable in lots of times, how I think we even sometimes deliberately change our memories to fit with the narrative that we want to make of our life. So that one that got away concept was so fascinating to me. And at the time I was working on another novel that wasn't going so well. So I was thinking I kind of wanted something a little bit more escapist, I think. And it felt like that one that got away thing would just be something that was just kind of light and fun to do, which is quite funny in hindsight, because that's not at all how the novel actually turned out. Um, and at the same time, it had been a few years since the Me Too movement really took hold. And I'd really spent so much of that time just having conversations with friends, with other women, and just thinking about my own past experiences. And it felt like there was just this huge, just collective reckoning and this collective horror. When people were looking back on those formative romantic and sexual experiences and just realizing that through that sharper lens of Me Too that we were now looking at it through, realizing that the way that they had thought things had happened at the time just really felt really strange and really different now as an adult with that kind of, you know, the greater the greater knowledge and experience of adulthood, but also just this new way that we were looking at all those different kind of things. And it was just at the start of lockdown as well, which I think really inspired the setting of the novel. Um, I was like everyone else just stuck at home in my own living room not able to go anywhere and I was just thinking god I really want to go on holiday and I couldn't go on holiday so I thought okay I will write this this one that got away book about a first summer romance set in this beautiful location and there'll be this this me too angle to it so all those ideas really came together right from the word go I think and I had a very clear idea from those almost three strands of inspiration where the book was going to go right from the outset. And had you ever attempted to write a novel before or was this your first go? Yeah, this was my second attempt at writing. And well, I had probably done more than two attempts, actually. I'd probably started a lot of novels over the years. Um, I'd just finished another novel when I started writing this. And it was a novel that I've been working on for a really, really long time. I'd actually been working on it for probably about four years. And I'd written, I think at this point, 12 drafts of it, which, I mean, I know some people love redrafting, but I hate redrafting. So, so 12 drafts was no small feat for me. I was not enjoying it at all. I was having a horrible time. And I'd just finished sending it out to agents and I had had kind of some interest, uh, lots and lots and lots of rejections, um, a few kind of different rounds of edits after sending it out to agents. And it just really wasn't getting anywhere. So I was in quite a kind of disheartened place when I started writing The Girls of Summer, just, just because, I, you know, I love that novel so much. It was something I really wanted to work out at the time. Um, but yeah, then I started writing The Girls of Summer and it just came together in just a much easier, much quicker, just very, very different way, I think, from that first novel. 
So did you just get a sense and a, and a feeling that this was different and this novel maybe had legs where your other one didn't? Yeah, I think it did. Um, I remember writing, so I just sat down and just wrote the first chapter kind of all in one go. Like I got up really early in the morning, just sat down, just, you know, just blasted it out. And I like I remember leaving the room and kind of going in and saying to my partner, like, this is like, I've got such a good feeling about this. I can feel that it's better than the, the first one, which is so funny because I think when I'd only written the first one, I hadn't started The Girls of Summer. I just thought, I don't think I can do better than that first novel. Like, I think this is my best attempt. And I've, you know, I've given it everything. I've really tried with it and it didn't work out. So maybe I'm just never going to be a writer. Um, but yeah, almost as soon as I sat down to write that, that first chapter, it was like all the feedback that I've been getting from agents just suddenly made sense. Um, and I guess, you know, it's it was a hard process sending it out to agents and not getting anywhere, but it was also really useful because I think even maybe without knowing that I had, I had absorbed so much feedback from people that just really flowed through when I started writing The Girls of Summer. Mm. It's interesting that you had initially, or even before this novel, started to write or wanted to write a kind of a romantic novel. This mm. novel obviously... Um, has elements where Rachel believes perhaps that she was in a in a wonderful whirlwind romance but we as readers can kind of twig that maybe all was not as it seems and you ended up writing a thriller was that a surprise <laughs> to you? Yeah I mean I don't think I ever thought that I was going to write a romance novel um I'm not a very you know I, I love a good romance novel I'll read them um, but I'm not a very romantic person. I'm quite a cynical person, I think. And I'm definitely in the stuff that I read. I am drawn to dark stuff. I'm drawn to stuff that has very sort of psychological elements to it. So that is something that really interests me. So I think, you know, I was never just going to write a really happy romantic story. I don't think that was ever something that I was going to do. In terms of it being a thriller, I don't think I set out to write a thriller. And I don't think it is kind of a straight thriller in lots of ways. I think it's much more cross genre than that. But I think that I was aware that something that was really missing in that first novel was that sense of pace um, and that kind of sense of narrative drive. So that was something definitely something I was consciously trying to put into it without thinking that's going to make it feel a bit more like a filler. But of course, that was how it turned out. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. It's not a, a kind of typical uh, psychological thriller. There's definitely layers to it. And, and we'll touch on some of the bigger themes later. But um, I'd love if you could tell us a little bit more about Rachel. Where do we find her? Um, I know you mentioned a little bit in your summary about where we find her as an adult, but tell us a little bit more about what she's like as a teenager, where we find her, because her, her marriage is, I wouldn't say particularly happy when we first meet her, so tell us a little bit about Rachel in both kind of timelines. Yeah, so when we, well, as you kind of said, there's two timelines to the novel. There's a then strand, which is Rachel as a teenager, and there's a now strand, which is Rachel uh, as an adult in her mid-30s. So when we first meet Rachel in the then strand, she is backpacking with her friend Caroline. And she's 17, she's just about to turn 18. And she's someone who's quite insecure. She, you know, doesn't have loads of friends. She has a lot of anxieties and she really leans on her friend Caroline, who is the much more kind of popular, outgoing uh, character. And they've been planning this trip to Greece for a little while. And Rachel really thinks, oh, this is the thing that's going to like make me into the person that I'm supposed to be. I'm going to be, you know, so it's going to be so amazing. I'm going to be meeting people. I'm going to become really sociable. It's just she has this vision of this trip. It's going to transform her as a person. And of course, she gets out there and she's having to meet all these new people and stuff. And it just really heightens her insecurities. And Caroline absolutely shines in that scenario, whereas Rachel, it just really reminds Rachel of all the things that she's not. And then she meets Alistair right at the start of the novel. And she feels like this really elevates her into the person that she's trying to be. She's got this attention of this much older man. Um, he's someone who all her friends think is, you know, very cool, very exciting. They're suddenly getting invited to all these parties and she suddenly feels included for the first time in her life, really. And then when we first meet Rachel as an adult, she, in some ways, she's got a lot of similarities to Rachel as a teenager. In some ways, she's not really, I think, progressed or evolved as much as she might have expected someone to evolve in that in that time period. Um, she's still quite insecure but now she's become much better at covering it she's got quite a kind of brittle outer shell which you know as, as the novel evolves we'll, we'll learn about why she is the way she is a little bit more and as she said she's in this marriage to Tom and I think she really feels like she's fallen into this marriage to Tom in some ways she met him when she was in a really dark place in her 20s 
Um, and he's just kind of the good guy, you know, he's the person who's easy to be with. He's very sensible. He's a couple of years older than her, but he's very, you know, settled in his career. And to her, he just kind of represents this thing that she hasn't quite had throughout her late teens and early 20s is stability. Um, so she just kind of falls into this relationship with him and really quite quickly and almost unexpectedly for her, they're engaged, they're living together, and then they're married. And I think that there's a lot of good things about that relationship you know Tom's very supportive he is that stability for her but I think that when she compares it to that relationship that she had with Alistair and that amazing whirlwind feeling of falling in love for the first time she just can't get past that fact that she feels like something's really lacking in her marriage to Tom. So in your you've mentioned you have two timelines one is the then and one is the now how conscious were you because your your then strand has got this kind of like claustrophobic hot atmosphere where we know there's this bubbling tension under the surface how conscious were you then that your now strand had to be as equally compelling and how did you do that I'm gonna say you did manage to achieve that but how did you manage to achieve it oh thank you um yeah that was something that I was very aware of I think again just because when I wrote that previous novel a big part of the feedback was that it was lacking that kind of pace and narrative drive because it was a much more character driven novel so I was definitely aware that the the now strand was going to be a little bit slower um again those elements those psychological elements of kind of memory and looking inwards um they're saying I find really fascinating but I also know they don't necessarily make for a particularly um compulsive novel so it was something that I thought about a lot and that was a big reason why I guess the then strand I knew I had to have that flitting between them so that pace and that drive was kind of kept up throughout the novel but also I really was aware of the fact that Rachel was going to have to have some sort of quest in the in the present day narrative and that's really where the idea of her looking for Alistair came from that was something that I decided a little bit later on when I kind of started writing I think at first it was that present day strand was going to be much more reflective and much just about her grappling with those memories and just kind of realizing the truth of that summer but I, again, I was I was so aware that that was going to be, although I thought it'd be really interesting, was going to be a bit slow. So that's when I decided, I think Rachel needs to want to find Alistair. Yeah, and I think that was a great decision as well, because it did give you that, like you said, that quest that she has to go on. I noticed your sections in the past were actually written in the present tense. So can mm-hmm. you tell us your reason for doing that? Yeah, that was... I didn't think about that too much when I did it, but I think it was a very deliberate decision <laughs> from my subconscious because, so the book is so much about memory, but it's also really about trauma. And something that I really wanted to get across is how little Rachel's moved on from that from that summer. And that's really a, a really important thing with trauma. So many people who experience it really feel like they never quite move on from that moment of trauma. So for Rachel, I really wanted to get across to the reader that she is still in many ways in that summer. And, it, you know, I think as an adult, Rachel can be a little bit frustrating as a character. Again, because you think, well, she hasn't really, she's still clinging on to the summer when so many people would have moved on. She's, you know, she hasn't maybe grown up as much as you would like her to have done. But I think that that is a really core thing and a really important experience that people have when they've experienced trauma. And I really wanted to get that across that that feels so visceral and so real to Rachel, even even all this time on. So that was part of the decision. But then I think another part of it that I also really wanted to get across was this idea that the reader is experiencing it as Rachel experiences it. They, you know, there's there's kind of two different versions of the truth in the story. And I think to the reader, it becomes obvious what is true and what's a lie a little bit earlier on than it does to Rachel as a character. So I wanted us to be in that and experience it as Rachel's experiencing it as a teenager at the time, but also as Rachel's re-experiencing it as an adult. And I think for that to be the case, it had to feel so present and it had to feel like we were in the moment, both in the now and then strands. Yeah, I think it works so well. And it was something I didn't notice until about halfway through the book. And then I thought that, you know, that's exactly why you've done it, because you yeah. be experiencing it with her. And also the reader kind of cottons on before teenage Rachel does about kind of what's happening. She's got this older relationship with this guy. And as an adult, we can see why she kind of idolizes this relationship and holds it up as dream time. But the reader can see signs of something a lot more sinister. And obviously, oh, I don't want to spoil too much. What was it about this topic then that kind of made you really want to write about it? And how did you go about balancing, particularly Alistair, because obviously we we need him to be this total dream of an older guy, but also we need to see enough darkness so that as a reader, we're looking at it going, 
Rachel, come on, you know, <laughs> see see what's happening here. Um, how did you kind of balance, particularly balance Alistair, how did you kind of indicate his darker side to us? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah, that was a really interesting thing to write because I was so, I knew that was going to be such an important part of the story and I was so keen to get it right. And I had to think about how I was going to portray him in a way that would strike that tone. Because I think it's, again, there's such a duality to the narrative, right? And that we're seeing it through teenage Rachel's eyes, but we're also seeing it both through adult Rachel's eyes, still being a little bit naive about it. And then there's also almost kind of a third viewer who is the reader seeing it and kind of screaming at Rachel and being like, oh my God, why can't you see what's going on? So I wanted him to feel really charming, but I wanted him to feel really charming in a way that he would to a teenage girl, but that an adult woman would hopefully immediately see through. So he does a lot of those things that I'm sure that many of us heard as a teenager, like, you know, that like, oh, you're not like other girls, kind of all those little things that guys say to quite naive young girls that makes them feel kind of special. But when you're looking at it as an adult woman, you're like, that's not really a compliment. <laughs> it's... So he had to do a lot of those kind of things that would be so charming to Rachel, but that as an adult reader, you're immediately, that's kind of an immediate red flag to you. And again, we go through that process of Rachel as an adult gradually starting to see those red flags. Like there's a particular scene, um, and you know, if this feels like too much of a spoiler, feel free to cut this out. But there's a particular scene where she kind of sees a picture of herself at that age um, for the first time. And she's kind of imagined herself as looking very different at that age kind of she had this vision of again of herself in Greece kind of feeling like oh that was when I really came into my own that was when I you know started to just be this really like perfect version of myself and I was confident and I looked amazing and then when she kind of sees what she actually looked like at the time it's a little bit of a shock to her that mm. that is not how she was at the time and almost seeing herself through Alistair's eyes for the first time yeah she was an actual child when she mm. she was there and it's seeing that picture of herself that makes her go oh okay I wasn't this kind of glamorous young thing that was completely irresistible I was a child so yeah it's a it's a it's a difficult balance and I guess when you're when you're dealing with such a a sensitive topic did you feel that kind of pressure because I'd imagine like you know you want to you want to handle it sensitively authentically you want to not kind of um, sensationalize it. And though, I don't know whether those kind of pressures feed into your thoughts as you were writing or whether that was a kind of a later thought when you were on, you know, draft 11, what what was kind of going through your mind? Were, were you, were you concerned about handling those topics? Yeah, that was something that I was hugely, hugely aware of. And I think I was aware of it even right at the start when I was writing it, when I wasn't even necessarily 
because I, I in a way had such low expectations for this novel because I hadn't got an agent in the first novel I wasn't thinking like oh you know I'm gonna get booked in and people are actually going to be reading it but even then I still really really it was something that was really really important to me to get right and I think there was a big combination of kind of drawing on personal experience drawing on just that kind of all those things that you know I discussed with other women just really throughout my whole life and also doing a lot of research as well um, I did do a lot of kind of reading of things about trauma things about the experience of women who've been in a similar situation to Rachel so so I was hyper aware and as you said so it was hugely important to me was not to sensationalize it um, I know we've said the book you know does have some thriller elements but I didn't want certain parts of the book and certain aspects of the story to feel very very thrillery and very sensationalist um, I wanted them to feel really authentic and really sympathetic to people who've been through similar experiences and in particular there's some scenes that are very very sensitive scenes indeed and they were you know they were difficult to write and actually those scenes are the ones that are the most untouched from the first draft I really did just write them and it was almost like I had to go into this like really deep place inside me where I was just doing this kind of stream of consciousness thing and I had to be kind of so in Rachel's head and Rachel's body that I just kind of couldn't touch those scenes afterwards because I think they did really reflect how that would feel and just kind of how much of a confusing kind of jumbled up experience that would be for somebody and I just didn't yeah I didn't want to change that once I'd written it I, I felt like it was authentic to to that experience mm. that's so interesting because they do feel very raw and not in an unpolished way but in a really honest way I think when you're reading them and because they are um quite shocking and, and dark I think like you say you have to be as truthful as you can be and probably the fact that you didn't ed over edit them is is a sign that you were tapping into something very very honest um you've mentioned that part that aspect of it was a difficult part was there any other parts that you found really difficult to write or or any any part of the kind of writing process that you found particularly challenging was it I don't know channeling your inner teenager what what was it for you that was difficult you know what I found channeling my inner teenager really easy and really fun um I'm such a nostalgic person like I can be nostalgic about literally anything even even times in my life that are objectively horrible I can look back at them and be like oh, but I really missed that particular thing about it and I think that's how Rachel is as a person as well so that was very easy to write about that you know that that feeling of being a teenager and the excitement and the sense of possibility because that's something that I think about a lot and that's something that I miss as well I think um, and it really was a bit of a dream book to write, to be honest, um, because I'd had that experience of writing a book that was really, really difficult to write. I think that was particularly apparent. So there weren't any bits when I found super, super challenging or got really stuck. I mean, of course, writing a novel is quite a challenging and difficult thing to do in the first place. Um, but I think just because I was comparing it to that experience of writing my first novel, it just felt like such a dream. Um, I would say the only bit that I wasn't quite sure about, I knew that something bad was going to have happened to Rachel and her friends, but I think I wasn't exactly sure what that was. So there was one point, probably about 25% of the way through, where I had to stop and go and write a scene that actually happens much, much later on in the novel, just to kind of figure out what was actually going to be the, the bad thing that happened to them, I guess. And that isn't something that I, I was trying to write the book super, super chronologically. So I guess that was the point when I was getting most stuck because that was when I knew, right, you have to go and write this scene. Otherwise you're just going to be staring at a page for the next however many weeks. So are you much of a planner then? Have you got it all kind of worked out before you start writing? I'm not a natural planner. Like I really, really hate planning. I don't enjoy it at all. <laughs> I resist it as much as possible, but I definitely need to plan. Um, so I've tried it both ways. I've tried it just going in and just writing and just seeing what happens. And I have also tried it planning. Um, and it always goes infinitely, infinitely better when I do plan. So what I will try and do now, I'll try and outline not the whole thing, because I think I I think a lot of people are like this, but I can't really think unless I'm writing. Like if I just sit down and I'm like trying to figure out a tricky plot point or just generally the direction things are going, my brain is just total, total tumbleweed. So I need to, the ideas just come as I'm writing. So what I'll normally try and do, I'll try and plan maybe, you know, a, 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 chunk, a chunk of chapters. So it might be the first kind of 25% or something like that, write those. And then as I'm going, I'll be planning the next block of chapters or when I get to the end of that, I'll plan a little bit more or something like that, which I think is nice because it means you've got the flexibility that you don't feel really, really tied to a plan. But at the same time, it means you're never sitting down at your laptop and thinking, I've got no idea what I'm going to write today. You can always look at the plan and be like, right, the next chapter is this. So that is what I'm writing today. Mm. 
I'm a big advocate of that as well. I I don't like going to my document and being like, what what's happening? I, I <laughs> so like are you a total planner then? Are you yeah, do you plan everything? Yeah. Okay. I, so I wasn't. I mean, I, I always start and try with a plan. I mean, sometimes it goes completely off course, but I <laughs> like to. I've always. I mean, particularly with the sea women, I always knew how it would end. Um, and mm. I always and what I'm writing at the moment, I have, I know the ending. I'm I'm actually secretly writing two books at the moment uh, <laughs> we've all been there <laughs> yeah, that's not good is it uh but yes I think having an ending in mind helps but I like a plan I I cannot and I also I'm like you I like to write in chronological order I couldn't be one of these people that goes oh I'm going to write chapter 17 today because mm. I'd be like well I don't I don't know what's happened in chapter 16 yet so yeah. um, or how my characters are feeling or you know those silly things that us writers worry about but, but I'm, yeah. I'm like you in that in that sense I feel like the problem with that as well is that you then end up if you do do it like that you end up with all the chapters you didn't want to write at the end and yeah. just like the last chunk of writing the book is just going to be hell so it's the, and it's all the kind of getting your character from a to b type stuff that you have to write mm. there's never the most exciting things like everyone always wants to write like the big confrontation or the you know the first kiss or whatever it's going to be um and then you end up with the the kind of necessary itty bitty scenes that you don't really want to write exactly yeah see we've got it figured out I completely agree we're on on the right track I think Uh, I'm very envious that you always know your last scene though because that's always a thing that's hanging over me I just never know what the last scene's going to be and I'm just like really hope I pull this out the bag because I've got (laughs) no idea I think part of that is because I had some mentoring once and and we were discussing like what the ending should be and my mentor said to me, your end should be a mirror to your opening scene. Mm. And for some reason that just clicked something in my brain. And even if it's not an exact mirror, I think it's somehow if it reflects something in your, and I mean, no spoilers, yours does in a way. So I feel like, you know, you know what you're doing. Yeah, that was deliberate. So yeah, <laughs> I'm almost in some deep down part of myself. I do know what I'm you doing, do. but I never yeah. feel like I do. So <laughs> <laughs> none of us, none of us do. We never know what we're doing. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit more about your kind of writing process. I mean, you have been um, a journalist. You've also worked in um, academic publishing. So writing has been your life for a long time. How has that differed from kind of writing a novel? Or has it, or has it helped? Mm. Well, I think it has helped. I think probably academic publishing helped less than you might think, just because it's so different to to trade publishing. Um, I was really just working on some very, very niche, very high level academic monographs that, you know, sold like 50 copies. So I I don't think, you know, I very rarely actually went in and edited a book because they would just be just subjects I had no knowledge or understanding of. But I think the journalism did, and I was doing that for probably about three years before I started writing The Girls of Summer. And I was really just doing it on the on the side of my publishing job. Um, I've been working in publishing for a few years wasn't particularly happy wasn't finding it particularly creatively fulfilling and I really just thought I'll start writing some articles as a bit of a creative outlet um at the time I wasn't even really aware that I could do it as a job or that I could make any money for from it I was just writing for free at first just because I enjoyed doing it but I think having those few years of doing journalism really taught me a lot about just really forming a narrative arc and just that really kind of basic stuff of kind of like you said like the ending should mirror the beginning. That was something that I really learned from from writing articles. And I think there's a lot of similarities whether you're writing, you know, a thousand word article or a feature or even an opinion piece and whether you're writing a hundred thousand word novel, those things are still true in terms of how you just create a story that people are following along with and people are feeling those those arcs within it. Mm, Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you some technical questions now. So when you were writing The Girls of Summer, how long did it take you to have a first full draft? Mm-hmm. It was really, really quick. So I had a first draft in probably about eight or nine months. Um, I put a lot of that down to the fact it was locked down. So I didn't really have anything else to do. Um, I'd gained all that time that I used to spend commuting, which is obviously really important for writing it. And also, of course, I wasn't socialising in the evenings, on the weekends and stuff. So I just had kind of so much time to dedicate to it, to it which was such a just unique, amazing experience and Obviously, you know, lockdown was terrible for lots of reasons. But yeah, I, I do feel quite lucky that I was able to get that first draft out so quickly now. And now that you're writing new things, 
which I will grill you about later. But now you're writing new things and you've got, I'm asking this because I think some people have this belief that when you have endless time, it's suddenly quicker and easier to write a book. But I don't think that's true. And I think sometimes when you have more time, it's harder than to dedicate time to to writing when you've got all day to do it and you think, I'm not going to start at eight because I've got the whole day, but I know you, you like to write early, but so how much time are you spending now kind of writing? Are you spending a couple of hours? Do you set like a word count target? Um, we don't have to tell the editor this at all. So be completely <laughs> honest. <laughs> yeah. You know what? It's been such a process trying to figure out like how I write now that I do it full time I think I had this just really like idealistic vision of it when I you know when I quit my job and was just like right I'm just doing this novel now and I was like right well I wrote The Girls of Summer in like eight months by doing it for like an hour to a day so I'm doing this for you know nine to five every day now so I'll have a novel in like two months probably it's gonna be great like it's gonna be, I'll, I'll write multiple novels and then I just can choose which ones they want and that was not how it went <laughs> so I initially like just tried to do that thing when I was like I am just writing nine to five I've had enough of like writing early in the morning and after work and on weekends I've been doing that for years I'm just gonna treat it like a job and I'm just gonna solidly write nine to five it's gonna be brilliant that is not what happened at all normally what I would find is I would do like an hour two hours maybe and then I just could not concentrate after that and I would just I really really beat myself up about it like I would force myself to just sit at my desk and just stare at the screen and again I ended up just doing a lot of like scrolling through social media and just you know stuff that is not helpful to you at all and you know I would still only be doing the same amount of writing a day that I was doing when I was working two full-time jobs but then I was spending the rest of the day just being absolutely horrible to myself and just beating myself up about not writing solidly so I think I really realized like I cannot because writing is such it's such mental work it's so so focused I don't think I can actually sit down and just write for more than two or three hours a day and obviously there's other things that you can be doing in that time you know you can be planning you can be you know just working on like figuring out your characters a little bit things like that things like this you know chatting to people about books like all of that stuff it's still kind of part of the job um but yeah, I think I've really had to realise just to be a little bit more kinder on myself and be like, you know, if what you need to do to kind of free up that brain space is like go for a walk or go just go out of the house and just go and sit in a coffee shop and just be around other people, not just sitting in this room trying to write, then that is kind of all part of the process. And like reading as well, like reading is such a huge part of writing because if I didn't read all the books that I read, I wouldn't know how to write in the first place. So I've just had to learn to be a little bit kinder to myself and just accept that all of those things are also part of my writing routine and that I'm still doing I'm still doing valuable work even if I'm not just you know getting words down into a word document um but yeah it's kind of difficult to say what my writing routine is now because it's taken me such a long time to get to that point where I've accepted that and accepted that I'm not just going to be writing solidly for eight hours a day so yeah I'd say at the minute probably about two or three hours a day of writing but even Mm -hmm. then I won't always make that so so do you kind of say I'm going to work two hours a day or do you say I'm going to write a thousand words like do you have a kind of indication of okay my my day is done now and I and I have to say like I totally 100% agree with you I don't think I have tried to write for like you know all day and I do not think it's possible like mm-hmm. I I'm sure there are people that can do it but I, I certainly think that three hours is my maximum and yeah. I always am honest to people and say like I literally cannot write anything after that three hour point so there's no point do you do you set yourself like a time target or a word count target or is it a bit more kind of fluid than that well that's really reassuring to hear you say that as well because again even I'm trying to be nice to myself about it I definitely do still feel a bit guilty sometimes so that's absolutely and and I think that's I think we're all guilty of it and it's that's partly another reason why I started this podcast because I'm very nosy and I like to hear how other people (laughs) work and I think it is reassuring because I think we do assume that you know as writers that's our job and even if you have another job you know, when you have time, the idea is, you know, you spend every waking minute working on your book, but realistically, creative, you know, creative work isn't the same as just, I don't know, I'm not going to be rude to any other jobs, but it, you know, it's tough on many parts of your brain. You can't do that for hours and hours and hours. Mm. Like, I don't think your brain can cope doing that for hours and hours and hours. So I certainly think three hours is three hours is my limit. And, and, uh, you know, there are times like you where I feel like oh I should be doing more or I should be pushing myself harder but 
otherwise if you do it what's going to come out nothing good yeah it doesn't produce the best work at all yeah so so for you what's your kind of stopping point then do you say a thousand Mm -hmm. words two thousand or are you just kind of more a bit more kind of whatever the day brings yeah if I'm having a solid writing day and particularly kind of if a deadline's approaching I'll definitely try not to stop before a thousand words a thousand words will kind of be my lower limit um in terms of I don't really have an upper limit that I would aim for just because you know if you're really in the flow and it's going really well and you're feeling you're enjoying it and you're feeling good about it kind of why stop um there was a point so I was also writing a little secret side novel as well and there was a point when I was really loving that and I think I want on one day hit like 5,000 words a day which was completely unheard of for me I'd never never done anything like that before but I think when I was writing that just because I was loving it so much I was doing kind of 3,000 words a day um, which says so much doesn't it it's like when you're enjoying something and you're loving it and it's a secret project so the pressure's off you can just be so much more productive mm. I think it just goes to show like so much of what holds you back as a writer is writing what you feel like you should be writing rather than what you love or or even just like feeling that pressure for it to be perfect which I think really holds you back and those are the days when you you look at the page at the end of the day and you've written 100 words then you've rewritten them 100 times but just because you know that really kills off creativity that pressure I think yeah absolutely so I want to ask you a little bit more about your kind of publication journey from the moment you signed your contract. So did you get your agent kind of just through a kind of regular way of, of querying? Is that how you found your agent? Yeah, I did. Yeah, it was very much a, people call it like a slush pile submission, don't they? Um, yeah, so I'd already obviously been through the process once before with that first novel that I'd written. And when I did that, I had this little spreadsheet that I made and kind of wrote down all my agents that I was going to send it to. And I think I sent it to about 50 agents in that. And of course, because I didn't have like any contacts in the industry or like it just anything like that. I was just going into it like completely, completely blind. Obviously, most of them I just didn't even get a response to or I just got kind of form submission. Um, but that meant that when I was going into submitting for the Girls of Summer, I kind of felt a bit better about it because I had this, I already had this big Excel spreadsheet list of names and I already had kind of noted down in that spreadsheet, like people who had responded well to me in the first place or people who I just had a bit more of a detailed response to, um, you know, whether or not that actually did mean that they were interested in my writing or not. It just kind of felt like I know I can send it to these people and I'm not just going to get probably just radio silence. I'm at least going to get a nice rejection. <laughs> so I was feeling a bit more positive about that. So I took from that list, um, I sent it to seven agents, I think, in the first place. And some of them were ones off that list. The actual agent I ended up signing from was not someone I sent it to the first time around. And I honestly, I could not tell you why I didn't send it to her the first time around. I don't remember. I've got absolutely no clue. Um, But for some reason, she wasn't on that first list and she was on that second list. So I sent it out to about seven agents. And, you know, I had about a week or two of kind of radio silence. And then I had my first request for the full manuscript. And, you know, as you might have experienced this and other people who've been through this process might relate to this. Once you've had one person interested, you then kind of email the other agents and say, oh, yeah, so someone else has requested the full now, just to let you know, because a lot of agents tell you that you have to do that on the submission guidelines. And as soon as that happened, it just things started moving really, really fast. Almost everyone requested to see the full manuscript after that. Um, Yeah, it was that, that was the moment, I think, when I was like, oh, okay, this is this might something might actually happen with this I think that was the first moment when I was like maybe I'm actually going to get an agent and like I hadn't even thought about getting a book deal beyond that funnily enough just because I'd like become so focused on the idea of getting an agent I was like okay get an agent and then yeah it was like I just never thought about what would happen beyond that so yeah I had all these four manuscript requests and my agent who actually signed with Reddit overnight um and got back to me just really kind of enthusiastic really loved it and I got offers from a few agents, but she just really, really stood out to me um, really early on. Just her her passion and enthusiasm for it just really, really shone through. Yeah, that's great. That's what you want in an agent. You want that enthusiasm from, from day one. Yeah. So I wondered whether you had any advice for anyone who, perhaps the next cohort of debut authors. So next year's, although it's frightening to think, 2024's <laughs> debut authors oh gosh I'm sure maybe some of them well I hope some of them will be listening now <laughs> what would your advice for them be you know you've signed your contract you've got this probably 18 months ahead where you're looking at covers you're dreading reviews you're you know you're anticipating what's to come what would be your advice then for for anyone who perhaps I don't know whether you've got any kind of like emotional advice or practical advice for anyone that's about to become a debut novelist 
Yeah, so yeah, it feels so crazy now to look back on when I was in that position because it was such a long time ago for me. It was I had two years between getting the book deal and um and the book publishing, which I mean things do move really slowly, but I think that mm-hmm. was a particularly long period of time. Um so yeah, it's I would say just try not to get too obsessed with it, which is so difficult. Um, because obviously it's like it's probably the biggest thing that's happening in your life and it's so exciting and it's so amazing, which like, of course you should feel like that. Like it is really exciting, it's amazing, it's a huge achievement. Um, but just because like you are really in it for the long haul, those two years are gonna feel really, really long. Um, I would just like try and get a really good hobby. <laughs> like just try and do something else that's gonna distract you because I mean I've the girls are summer for me now when we're recording this, it just came out a few days ago. And you will have like months and months in that time where you're feeling like nothing's going on and kind of no one cares about the book and everyone's forgotten about it after the kind of first excitement of getting the book deal. Um, but, you know, that's that's not the case. And then when you get very, very close to publication and get to publication week, all of a sudden things start to happen really, really quickly. And it's, you know, it's the best feeling. It's it's amazing. So you've got that to come. Just try and distract yourself as much as you can in the meantime. And yeah, just don't focus too much on like don't when proofs start going out, don't read reviews. I definitely did read reviews at first. I don't anymore at all. Just it's it's the like, why would you do that to yourself? It's the worst thing for you. Just try not just try not to read your reviews if you can. It's difficult, but yeah just just do your best not to um and then yeah just try and find other people in the same position as well um I've met some like really lovely other debut authors kind of throughout this process um one in particular who like we message most days and just kind of lament how difficult writing a second book is um and that really helps just because it's such a you know when you when you have an office job you can just go and complain about your job to your office mates in the kitchen while you're getting a coffee and just you know you'll find out you all have the same things that you're worried about and the same things that you're complaining about and things like that and I think being an author is such an isolating experience like 90% of my time I'm just sitting in this office on my own like probably worrying about something so I think it's really good to just be able to sound that out with someone and just say are you feeling the same and 99% of the time they're feeling exactly the same. Mm, mm, Definitely Uh, there's nothing there's nothing an author needs more than a WhatsApp group or a DM group where you're just like, ah, I don't understand this thing or something's happened. Is this normal? Um, I can't write today. I've got to do, you know, I've got to get my edits in before Thursday and I can't do it. You know, you know all those kind of things that you need yeah. other people to get because people that don't write don't understand our weird little our lives as, as, as novelists so no. you and your friends will try and it. understand your friends will be so nice and they'll try and understand but they'll be like oh what about this thing and you're like no you idiot like that's not how it works <laughs> but obviously you can't say that to your friends because your friends are great and you love them but you know they just they don't they won't get it in the same way that someone else going through that process will I think so finally Katie you've been hinting that you're struggling with it but can you tell us anything about what you're writing next um Yes, well, the first thing I can tell you is that it has been a huge struggle, as I keep on alluding to. Um, yeah, I think everyone kind of says the second book is going to be really, really hard um, when you first start writing it. And I think at first I was like, no, I won't find it hard. Like, I do journalism. I'm used to deadlines. It's going to be a breeze. And I had this idea that I thought was really good and I was feeling really confident about it. And I started to write it and it was just a disaster. I hated every second of it. I was so miserable when I was writing it. I just knew it wasn't good but I kept on slogging away with it anyway because I thought you know I've got I've got this dream book deal it's amazing I want to prove to people that I can pull this off and I, I couldn't really pull it off it was my 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 heart just wasn't in the idea um so I did write a draft that sent it to my editors and you know like they liked it but they didn't love it and they kind of said you know we can we can fix this we can go away and do edits on it but how do you feel because we can tell that your heart's not really in it yeah. and I was just like yeah I mean I just want this book out of my life I don't want to write it I, it's making me miserable so I mean I have just the best editor team they're amazing they've been so sympathetic to it so we decided to scrap that novel um I'd been writing a kind of secret second novel at the same time um but that isn't really it's just not you know it's 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 a fun project for me I'm really enjoying it it kind of brought that love of writing back into my life for me after struggling with that first book so much um but it just wasn't a kind of natural follow-on to the girls of summer so we've now agreed on what my second novel is going to be um it's an idea that I'm super super excited about it's got a lot of things uh themes in it that I think people who like the girls of summer will respond really well to um a lot of examination of kind of memory um a lot of feminist topics and just a really nice beautiful escapist setting as well because I love writing them so I think I you know I've written a little bit of that we've just kind of had the sign off my editors which I'm really excited about 
Um, and then the day I got the sign off, I dropped my laptop in the bath. So <laughs> I was like, I'm ready and raring to go. And then 10 minutes later, I dropped my laptop in the bath, which was so stupid of me. It was completely my own fault. Um, but so now I'm waiting for new laptops. So I'm not writing it at the minute. But when I do get started, yeah, I'm just really excited to get going on it now. And I have a plan. So I'm feeling good about it. Mm, that sounds great. I mean, I'm hoping the dropping up the laptop in the bath wasn't like an omen or anything. But um... <laughs> God, <I hope> not. <laughs> well Casey I can't wait to read what you you write next I'm I'm a big fan of the girls of summer and I really look forward to seeing what you come up with next so thank you so much for joining on the podcast today oh thank you so much it was so nice to chat that was Katie Bishop talking about her psychological suspense novel the girls of summer which is out now and available to buy and if you'd like to support this podcast debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.